This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode is about women in science fiction and fantasy. Now, regular listeners to The Cosmic Shed will know that we are big fans of Bristol Festival of Ideas, and we recently went to one of their events where we had the opportunity to speak to William Gibson, the legendary science fiction author, of course, and also in the programme recently was a fascinating panel of science fiction authors and publishers under the title Women in Science Fiction and Fantasy, hence that's the title of this episode of The Cosmic Shed, because this episode is a recording of that panel. I'll see you on the other side of this. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll let the panel introduce themselves. Thanks. Hi, my name's Sean, uh, Sean Norris from the Bristol Women's Literature Festival, and I'm really thrilled to welcome you to this event tonight that's celebrating women's writing in science fiction, speculative fiction and fantasy. We're running this event in partnership with the Bristol Festival Ideas and Handheld Press, and it's one of a series of events that are going to culminate in the weekend at the end of March, the 26th to the 29th of March, which is the festival itself. And I really hope to see some of you there. We've got an amazing lineup of brilliant speakers and panels. We've got poets, we've got essayists, we've got comedians, we've got novelists, we've got lecturers, we've got journalists. It's going to be a real celebration of women's creative history and contemporary women writers today. So hopefully this will be a really great start for the festival. It's our first event of 2020, and as I say, I'm really happy to see so many faces here tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you all for coming. So my name is Kate MacDonald, and I always stand up and adjust my chair because that's what you do. And I am the director of Handheld Press, and we are a publisher. That's us, and some of our books are out there. I set up this panel in major consultation with Shan and with Naomi from Bristol Festival of Ideas because I don't think there are enough opportunities for a discussion about women in science fiction and women in fantasy writing and it's really really great I'm so pleased that Foyles have made this space available. I would like to introduce you now to our panel Emma Gein at the end she's the author of a truly excellent novel The Many Selves of Catherine North if you haven't read it go and buy it straight after they have stacks there it is an outstanding science fiction novel. She also used to be a lecturer in creative writing at Bath Spa, and she now and again does that. She also does social media for XR, which is quite time-consuming. Then we have Cheryl Morgan, who is the publisher at Wizards Tower Press, which is a very small independent publisher, but they've recently had a smash hit with Juliet McKenna's The Green Man's Heir, which is a fantasy novel which became top of the Amazon ebook charts for a very thrilling two weeks, three weeks? Oh, one day. One day. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll explain later. Yeah, okay. It was a good thing to do. Uh, Cheryl's also a science fiction critic and fan. Uh, she got a Hugo for semi prosine, and that is one of many Hugos, and she may bring out the Hugo later, so we can all look at it. Um, Liz Williams, author of many fantasy novels, including Comet Weather, which is available for sale by Cash Only after the talks, um, and also The Ghost Sister and Empire of Bones. She's also part owner of a witchcraft shop in Glastonbury and is still recovering gently from a conference on the occult, which finished yesterday. (laughs) 
Um, my background, I'm a literary historian as well as an editor and everything else to do with publishing, and I'm a research fellow at Oxford Brookes University in the publishing section of the English department. So I'm also a practitioner of research, and this one of the things I'm doing this summer is I'm giving a keynote paper at a conference in Hull on British women writers 1930 to 1960 on British women writing science fiction between 1930 and 1960. I am collecting data actively. If you can help me with any names, titles, let me know afterwards. I'll be glad to hear it. So, shall we start? One of the things, um, now I'll sit down, one of the things that um, I wrote in the marketing copy is that we're going to unlock the bonds of unknowing to illuminate the best of feminist science fiction. So, let's have a quick round of the writers we can't stop reading. So, Cheryl, go. How many do you want? Five, no more than five. <laughs> All right. So top of the list is always Catherine Valenti. Um, a, she's very good, and B, her prose is just absolutely uh, exceptional. And the, you know, we, people talk about having poetic prose, but Cat really started out doing it. And she, she's had to tone it down to, to be slightly more commercial, but it, it's amazing stuff. Um, also around at the moment, uh, Martha Wells... Um, if you've not heard of the Murderbot novellas, you're certainly missing out on some absolutely amazing science fiction. Uh, I should mention, by the way, my, my fellow panellists and also Emma Newman, who sadly can't be here. Um, but um, they, uh, they also all do absolutely brilliant books. Um, Nora Jemison, of course, the first person in history to have won the Hugo three times in a row for the three books of a trilogy. Uh, that's an amazing achievement. Uh, who else have we got on the list? Um, Mary Robinette Cowell has been doing some very interesting science fiction, looking at the, the role of women in the, the space race. And I, I, I mention this because Catherine Johnson, who was one of the lead uh, people in uh, Hidden Figures, died yesterday, I believe. She was 101. Uh, as, as somebody said, it was it's totally typical of a mathematician to, to wait so she could die with <laughs> a prime, prime number. Yeah. Of <laughs> <laughs> Died in her prime, I say. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, let's have Emma. Emma, yeah. what about you? Writers, you can't stop reading. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember which ones Emma had now because I remember feeling she stole some of the ones that I wanted. <laughs> I can claim them now for instance. Well. But um, I guess I'll start with, um, like, I think my three, like, I think them like my literary grandmothers, like if I could steal people from history that I could have, mm -hmm. it'd be like Octavia Butler, um, Margaret Atwood and Le Guin. They're just all like these just amazing women who just write really impactful sci-fi that just gets it to the heart of the world. Like it's they take you on wonderful adventures, but you just come away just knowing so much more about life. Um and and, and all come from really interesting perspectives. Um and I think I think particularly Gwyn I also really admired as a person, like just that kind of like ferocious but calm way of just facing up to things and just speaking the truth and not being afraid about it. Yeah. Such an intellect, Le Guin. So, Liz, what about you? Yeah, I chose Le Guin as well, but I'd also like to give a heads up to Tanith Lee, who's mm -hmm. sadly no longer with us. Um, who wrote fantasy and science fiction. Sometimes that gets put into a bracket called science fantasy, which is a label I wish we hadn't actually got rid of. Um, and in addition, Mary Gentle, who was doing things that a lot of male writers did later, for which they were fated, and Mary kind of wasn't. Um, so I think um, I'd really like to dig her up, and I do so at every opportunity, because yeah. she's such a risk taker. Yeah, she, yeah I've read one Mary Gentle mm -hmm. and blew me away. It was fantastic. 
Um, I would also like to uh, say Catherine Addison for her single novel, The Goblin Emperor, which I've reread twice in the last three months because it's just adorable and comfort reading and just delightful fantasy. It's so tremendous. And there's a sequel coming. Is there? Yes. Gosh, that's so exciting. I had thought there wouldn't, but when's it coming out? Uh, sometime this year, oh, I that's, believe. That's wonderful news. Uh, and by the way, Catherine Addison is a pen name, mm-hmm. so there are other books. Yes, yes. Okay, right. <laughs> the writers and artists you need to know about. Now, we may have covered that in the ones we can't stop reading, but if you are going to tell a student of science fiction, one author who happens to be a woman that you must absolutely read, who would that be, Liz? Le Guin. Le Guin. Cheryl? Yes. I put Mary Shelley on my list, which is a strange one, but I always mm. think like yeah. people never really think about her as mm. science fiction, but I think in some ways she was the first, not just female science fiction writer, but first science fiction writer, I would argue. I think, yeah. Um, like, Except she wasn't lines. because Margaret Cavendish preceded oh, so, her yeah. by yeah, quite a long time. Sorry, yeah. yeah. I'm talking rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not rubbish. No, no, no. Mary, no Shelley, Mary Shelley is a lot more accessible than Margaret Cavendish. In yeah. That there are multiple cheap copies from Penguin and so on. Yeah. Margaret Cavendish, explain the title. Uh, so Margaret Cavendish had a, a, a um, I can't, the, something like Burning World. Uh, and this was, and she was a duchess, and she wrote this in the 17th century, so the language is not terribly accessible. Mm. Um, but it's, um, in terms of early science fiction by anybody, um, it's a, a pretty good example. Uh, it's a utopia. Uh, so it, the, the Heroine travels to another world, and so there's lots of feminism in it. Mm-hmm. Surprised. <laughs> right? Okay. I also said that this was going to be an evening celebrating female geekery and science fiction creativity. So I think this is the moment for the Hugo. <laughs> Cheryl, show us your Hugo. <sighs> and can you explain what this Hugo is and what it's for? Okay. So this is a Hugo Award. Um, as uh, some of you will have heard, it is... May I touch uh, you go? Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to hold it up so those at the, at the back can see it. it. It's an award given out by the members of the World Science Fiction Society at their annual convention. That particular one was given out at uh, a convention in Melbourne in 2010. One of the things about the Hugos is that it always has this lovely silver rocket... I shall try to resist fondling. <laughs> but the, the base is uh, individually designed for the particular convention. So as Worldcon moves around the world, uh, each individual convention has its own base. This one was uh, designed by a wonderful Australian artist called Nick Stathopoulos, and it has uh, a whole bunch of Australian animals. There's a platypus there and also an Aboriginal person. It's not an Australian animal, but there's a parrot on there. Um, so it, the whole thing was, was designed to celebrate Australia, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a number of these. This one it was in a category called semi-prosine. It was when I was on the staff of a magazine called Clark's World. Uh, and if you like short fiction, Clark's World is free to access on the internet and it has some absolutely amazing material in it. So do check it out. Thank you. Would you say that receiving your first Hugo was a, a supreme geek moment? Not these <laughs> Well, no. Oh, um, partly, partly because it was a complete embarrassment. In that I, I hadn't been ex- expecting to win, uh, and I was sat there in the the auditorium. Uh, at, uh, this was in in Boston in two thousand and four, 
um, you know, expecting somebody else to win. And I happened to be looking down at something. I can't remember why, but I was looking down at the ground and there was this big gasp around the auditorium. And what happened is that the people running tech had screwed up and they'd flashed up the name of the winner of my category before it had been announced on stage. So everybody except me knew that I had won, <laughs> which was really bizarre. And I, I wasn't used to, I mean, it's only my second time being um, up for the award. So I hadn't really got the, the whole process off. I, I, was, I hadn't eaten properly. And because this was in Boston, things tended to, to shut early. Uh, and I, um, the, the the hotel wasn't. Uh, oh, the hotel was doing room service, but my roommate had gone to bed, so I couldn't have room service, and all the restaurants were closed. Uh, and so after the ceremony, I was just starving, desperately trying to find food. And my friend Farah Mendelssohn took me in hand, and eventually we we found your room, Liz, and you had yes. chocolate chip cookies, which, <laughs> <laughs> which saved my uh, um, well, my stomach at least. Saved uh, your blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yes, but no, I've I've had much geekier moments. Well, I sympathise. Okay, I yeah. how you felt actually. Yeah, I've yeah. had the same thing. So yeah. yeah. Liz, when was your best geeky moment? I I don't really know. I don't really do geeky. You don't. No, okay. sorry. No. Yeah. Can, right. can I give an actual geeky moment? Oh, okay then. Well, well let's right. have Emma, yeah. and then we'll come back to you. you. Uh, geeky moment. Um, I, I guess since we've been talking about Le Guin, I remember when my uh, book came out, I got basically used as an excuse to write like fan mail to all my favourite authors because like <laughs> the publisher sends your book out and it's like oh well, sneak in a letter with it. Um, and I got very excited that they said they'd send it to Le Guin, so I like drew like this picture of a fox and sent up a letter and stuff. And then like her, one of her assistant like left a, like a message on my website saying oh um she wants to write back to you like what's your address so I got so excited like <laughs> waiting for weeks at like the, the post box and stuff and then I like, got a letter back saying oh I love the picture of your box and like I hope to read your book and it's like oh I'm so touched by like that but also it's like that joke of like you having like a Stradivarius and Picasso in your in your your attic and then like but like um Picasso was terrible at making violins and, <laughs> and so it was a bit like well, <laughs> close, but... Yeah. Go on, Cheryl. Alrighty. So a few years back, I was at the Finnish National Science Fiction Convention in Tampere, and one of the guests of honour was Catherine Valenti, who I have said is my favourite author. Uh, and it was the year after David Bowie and Prince had died, and I knew that Cat was a fan as well, so I suggested to the convention that we do a memorial panel, uh, and Cat was up for it as well, so this, this was agreed. Uh, and I um, brought along some music because, obviously, um, we kicked off the panel with Kat and I doing karaoke Starman. <laughs> <laughs> Is the role of panels at the big conventions? Is that a way to share knowledge or to showcase or to do both? Both, I think. Both, yeah. 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 What would you say, Liz? Have you... Um, yeah, it's both, basically. It is... Um... Uh, you know, it, it, they are opinion pieces basically, or to, mm. or to share out what you what you want. It depends what the, the purpose of the panel is. You know, yeah. that you have publishing panels; mm-hmm. those can be very useful because you can download what you know about the small press or yeah. whatever. Um, but to an extent, they're to showcase your work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I had a geeky moment when. Gosh, I went to San Francisco just before, the, at the beginning, not this is a coincidence, when I arrived in San Francisco, the first Gulf War had just broken out. And I was there because a friend of mine worked for George Lucas. He was making Terminator 2. And he took me to Lucas Farm, whatever it's called. The farm where George Lucas... Lucas Ranch. Thank you. Lucas Ranch. And I had the sweatshirt, Lucas Ranch. 
But I saw all the Star Wars memorabilia. I was sort of pawing the glass. Because <laughs> not it was Indiana Jones memorabilia too, but it was the Star Wars stuff because there was lightsabers and there was R2-D2. And that was, I think I must have been about 24. I was so young and innocent. I thought this was the best thing ever. That was my... That was my top geeky moment as a, as a much younger woman. Yes. I want to know a little bit more about... Because we've been talking about science fiction and fantasy together. So, um, Liz, you just do fantasy. Emma, no, I, no, I don't. You actually. don't? No, right. I do science fiction. Mostly science fiction, actually. Well, this is interesting because I yes. haven't picked up on that. Right, tell okay. us how you separate, segregate or blend your science fiction and the fantasy writing. Okay, um, I said work? that in the, in the 70s and 60s, science fantasy was a sort of legitimate title in itself. Mm. And essentially, it's the kind of book that's set on other planets. It's adventure fiction. A lot of the science wouldn't obviously hold up if um, you actually held it up to the light. Mm. Um, it's, um, you know, it's faster than light travel and all that sort of thing. It's indistinguishable from magic. You could rewrite the science in those novels as magic. Um, but I think it's still a legitimate um, way to write because when you're writing science fiction, you're not just writing about science. You're writing about philosophy. You're writing about sociology. You're writing about religion. Mm. Um, it doesn't have to be message fiction, but you are trying to stretch the envelope and bring in um, different ontological ideas, different epistemologies. You're trying to explore um, what we know about the world and what we think we know about how people function. And female science fiction has been particularly sociological. We've all cited Le Guin, mm. um, but there have been a lot of others. Um, Susie McKee Charnas is a good example. Margaret Atwood is a good example. Connie, Connie Willis. Connie Willis is a great Very example. Good. Yeah. yeah. So all of those people are, are looking at um, at human dynamics. And I think science fantasy is, is a way to, or fantasy or science fiction, is a way to get that across. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be about science, but it's great if it is. Yeah. Emma, as a f- lecturer in creative writing, how, how do you teach the processes of science fiction and fantasy? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny, really, in terms of... Um, I think one of the things, biggest things you have to remind students of is that essentially it's the same skills as any other type of writing. Mm. Um, I think sometimes students get very excited about exhibition and like telling you all about the world and really that's the exact opposite of what you've got to do really. Mm. So there, I mean, there are certainly other skills like, you know, it's sort of, to sort of misquote Carl Sagan, it's like most writers, if you want to make an apple pie, you just go make an apple pie. Whereas if you're writing science fiction, you have to literally invent the universe first and like there's that kind of what-ifs and world-building, and it's certainly there's a lot of techniques around that which other people just don't even have to think about. Mm. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I keep on coming back to, like, you know, just the typical things of, you know, show, not tell, just really make people feel your world because I think it's it's so easy to get excited about the mechanics of it that a lot of students forget that. Yeah. Mm. yeah when I used to, te- I used to teach um, cultural studies and English literature, and I taught gender in science fiction and disability in science fiction and one of the things I kept having to remind the students when you're looking at older science fiction is the concept of what somebody probably a woman called galactic suburbia Mm. fiction from the 1950s where massive technological achievement has been done but women still stop working when they get married and women cannot hold science jobs and if they do they're always beautiful but as soon as they take their glasses off 
it's such a blinkered approach and you can still see it in modern science fiction, especially written by men, because it's always focused on the technology. It's not about the social history and how social dynamics have changed and how why human relationships will also evolve in time. A book I bought from this very shop, Suzette Haddon Elgin. Native tongue. Very good. It's outstanding. I started reading it in the Cafe Nera, waiting for my final panellists. I was annoyed when Cheryl turned up because I wanted to (laughs) keep reading. But this is a terrific novel so far, in fact, 20 20 pages in, about how society's sociology and its technology have evolved at the same time. It was published in the mid-80s. But, Peter, you need to get more in. This is amazing. It only came out last year from Galantz. So it's called Native Tongue by Suzette Suzette. Haddon Elgin. I thoroughly recommend it on the basis of the first two chapters. It's really good. Um, Interestingly, she's yeah. also got a great essay on the art of verbal self-defence. You know, if if somebody you know gets in your face, how you can actually push back against them without having a screaming row. So, that is going to be worth reading, Liz, because you do write fantasy as well as science fiction. Can you tell us a bit, um, um, developing the idea of sociology, how science fiction deals with belief systems and religions? Um, Okay. Well, it it deals with it well if the person writing it has got a background in a religion or the study of religion. Um, There are an awful lot of stereotyped kind of religions out there, especially in fantasy worlds. Mm -hmm. There are evil gods, there are temples, etc., etc., which we're we're all a little bit kind of over, I think it is fair to say. Would you say that, Cheryl? There's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons religion out there. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it there. There's a lot of D&D religion. and, I mean, Dennis Wheatley said that people who live in nice little houses don't want to read novels about other people who live in nice little houses. They want satanic cults, um, <laughs> damsels in distress, demonic conjuration, etc., etc. Um, so they want something that's sensationalist. And when the occult gets brought into fantasy, it does tend to be sensationalist, mm-hmm. uh, which it's not in your average bog-standard grimoire, for example. It's fairly technical, dull stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, I think we could do better, but I think a lot of people are actually doing pretty good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, think about Le Guin. She avoided religion. There's no religion in the Earthsea trilogy. So not in, no, not in Earthsea, but in Always Coming Home, she did sort of invent yeah. a series of religions, mm-hmm. which, or at least spiritual beliefs, I think, possibly, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's fair to say. Um, but um, she was a, an anthropologist, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so she's bringing an awful lot to that particular thing. Yes, party. yes, she knows a few yeah. stuff. And that would, of course, um, because that is all about religion. Yeah. You know, that handmaid's tale. It's belief. That's the driver. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've made a a list of differences from my vast reading experience between how I think men and women write science fiction and fantasy. And they're massive sweeping generalisations, but I thought they might be good as a, a way to kick off some discussion. So I'll just read them out and let's see how we go one by one. So I think that science fiction and fantasy by women authors contains significantly less objectification of characters for their bodily attributes and or sexuality. <laughs> Would that be a contentious thing to say? I don't know. She booped bustily down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe there's a Twitter feed called Men Write Women. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bad sex award, all right. Yeah. Can you think of a woman author who does sexualise the characters with intent? Because 
I mean, obviously there are many women authors, but audience too, chip in here. I mean, can you think of anyone, a woman author, who breaks that rule? Have I, I made a mistake? do it when they're writing from the male perspective. From the male perspective, yeah. yeah. So they think this is how men think. Therefore, yeah. this man must be sexualizing it. I think yeah. there's, there's quite a few rippling muscles in romance novels. Yes, that's, um, true. that's That's pretty, yeah. that's pretty clichéd, yeah. I think, a lot of it. Mm. OK, right, well, that seems to be fairly uncontentious. Um, <laughs> next one. Women science fiction writers use conflict as a modus operandi less often than science fiction by male writers. Now, that one I'm not sure about, because I'm thinking mm. Anne Leckie, uh, her recent trilogy, there's a lot of conflict there, and it's about how conflict is negotiated and changed. But, Cheryl, you're looking dubious. Um, no, I'm, I'm looking thoughtful. I mean, the, the, the first thing I, I think to say is that all of these things are, are, are relative, that yeah. there will be men who write stuff where you know, conflict is, is not... Uh, a central, or at least violent conflict, is not a central part of it. I'm mm. thinking, in particular, of um, Paul Cornell's um, Witches of Litchford series. But okay. we're mm-hmm. not here to talk about men. No. Um, we are here to talk about women. So even if the women have conflict in it, then it may well be done in a different way. Mm-hmm. So um, rather than have the hero fight against the, the bad guys, there might be some other way that they resolve that conflict. Yeah. Um, Emma, with... in Catherine North, there is conflict because without making spoilers, there is the protagonist and there is the corporation, if you like. I mean, I, I'd argue that there's conflict in any novel, really. Like, yeah. you know, Peter, Peter Rabbit has... I think conflict. I meant physical um, violence. Right? I mean, I mean, yeah. 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 Um, yeah um, physical violence in my book you should know this no. <laughs> um, I mean it had some biting and stuff I think I enjoyed writing about <laughs> having people yes. biting people I don't know why yeah. that was a thing foxes bite people that's true yeah, 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 there's, yeah. there's lots yeah. of foxes in that book <laughs> okay right um, women science fiction writers have plots that aspire to gaining more equality for their characters so there's less expectation of a hierarchy based on power which will prevail. How does that sound? Um, yeah, again, I mean, I, I, there's, there's plenty of examples out there, but the, the other thing that's worth bearing in mind here is that this whole uh, might shall triumph thing is more of a Western European thing than a human thing. Mm. Uh, and there are you know, other writers from around the world who will handle conflict in a different way. Now, the example I'm going to give is is Aliette de Baudard, who is uh, French-Vietnamese. And she talks a lot about how fiction from other cultures doesn't necessarily have that that same conflict dynamic the way that Western European stuff does. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, it's another woman writer, but I'm sure that there will be uh, other writers from um, Asia, for example, that will will deal Mm -hmm. with conflict differently than, than Europeans yeah I've just remembered Anne McCaffrey who I grew up reading addictively she had a series called The Ship Who Sang began with a short story from 1965 and then developed into a series of novels which were not connected but in the same universe and she co-wrote with lots of women authors and one male author and the novel that she co-wrote with the male author is the only one of the series to, to feature rape and extreme violence and massacre it's really quite quite a a, a notable 
characteristic of that series if you if you look at them looking at the authors too um it's also worth bearing in mind that her her most famous work is the dragon riders of pern series Mm -hmm. and in that the enemy is uh, a virus. It, it's, it's a virus. It's bacterium. Yes. So it, it's not people that they're fighting about. Mm. It's it's an entirely natural feature. Yeah, which is mm. a really interesting way of approach, and that then impacts on the sociology of the yeah. world as well, mm. which is clever, mm. very mm. clever. They're very good novels. They're dated a lot, but they're still mm. very readable. Okay, <coughs> subjugation. That's based on the power thing as well. So I'll skip over that one. Um, yeah, integration of the domestic. Do women writers of science fiction and fantasy integrate the domestic, the, the everyday, the caring, caring for individuals more than men do, servicing a community? Do male science fiction writers focus on the on the, the day-to-day servicing? Ken McLeod does. Does he? Definitely, right. yeah. Ken McLeod writes really good women, by the way. Mm-hmm. And if you want an example of, a, of good women characters written by a man, then he's your go-to person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think women do do it. Um, I do it in Comet Weather. Um, I have done it before. I've had characters who were protagonists who were, who were cleaners and so on. Yeah. Um, and who were, you know, the not very glamorous end of shit work, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, I don't know that we do it more than men, though. I mean, bear in mind it is, you know, it is speculative fiction. It's It's supposed to be exciting. Just doing the washing up, <laughs> not a big again? thrill for me. Um, so, but then so, we yeah. might get a novel where the technology for doing the washing up has completely been taken care of, so yeah. we don't have to spend our time doing the washing yeah. up. It's like Star Trek, you know, replicators. You don't even have to cook; you just yeah. bring it in a replicator. And and drink you're that. clutching a book, Cheryl. What is yes. this? So, show and tell. I've just started reading the latest Becky Chambers. Oh, it's um, good. It's very which good. is yes. really, really good thus far. But this particular one, I mean, it's about uh, an expedition to uh, another star system. So the, the characters in it have been in cryosleep for 14 years on, on their, their journey. Mm. Uh, and one of the things I found interesting about it is that in some ways it reminds me very much of Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, where there's a lot of focus on all the technicalities of, of space exploration. And they, he, he spends like three pages detailing all of the, the various tools that one of the astronauts has taken with them. I, it, it is a female astronaut, but it's three pages of, of tools, basically. Yeah, my um, late partner described those as animated textbooks. Yep. He really liked animated textbooks, sure. by the way. Only this characterisation <laughs> bollocks you could just get rid so, of. So this does some of the same stuff, but it also thinks about being being a human being on a spaceship. Mm. Uh, and just as an example, she talks about how when you people think about um, ships with cryogenic suspension, they tend to think of a big room with a bunch of coffins in. And yet, no, astronauts don't want that. Astronauts want to have their own cabin, and when they wake up, they want to be able to freshen themselves up and see what they look like. And the mirror is very deliberately positioned so that you can't see it until you have actually got out of your um, your bed and turned to see it rather than... So you don't get the shock of seeing yourself... Uh, just come out of cryosleep. So uh, there's a lot of talk about haircuts in here as well. It's, mm. it's really focusing and on the And nail cutting side. as well. Mm. Nail cutting, because you, yeah. You, you... Yeah, this is a very good one. That is absolutely on yeah. the same level as all our others so far. Mm. But yeah, she pays a lot of attention to the body yeah. and how you look after it in the mental yeah. health as well. Which Stan doesn't. Mm. Yes, yes. Ah, la, 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 la. What else? The Bechdel test. Have you heard of the Bechdel test? Good. 
women writers probably are more aware of the Bechdel test than male writers might be, and that's a terrible sweeping generalisation, but do you think that might be the case, that women characters in fiction written by women in the science fiction genre is more about their conversations about what's happening rather than, oh, that lovely man? What do you think, Emma? Yeah, I, mean, I think so in general. I, I think I find that test useful even for like myself. Like, yeah. I think it's um, one of those things that's so implicit in society. You really do have to catch yourself out sometimes. Mm. So, um, I, I think in general, women are better at it. But it's still a very useful test. Yeah, mm. Liz. Yeah, I think it's a useful test. It's. Um, I, I mean, if you, she's quite right. It, a lot of it is in culturally ingrained and. Um, I think there are there are books written by men in which it is really noticeable that somehow even all the conversations suddenly come back to the male protagonist, even the really feisty woman who suddenly decides that he's actually a really good thing. And <laughs> um, so, but I, I, again, I don't know because science fiction is literature ideas, and so much of it is has got to be about it's plot driven, not character driven. A lot mm. of it. Yeah. And that means that you don't tend to get um, an awful lot of interpersonalisation, especially in early science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Bechdel test is a good thing to apply. Yeah. Um, but it's not, I don't think it's always necessary. No. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moon does it very well because mm, she, she writes, um, I forget what it's called, but the science fiction and space navy science fiction, which is very, very well done because mm. she is ex military herself. And I'd say about 80% of her characters are female. And they have vast amounts of conversations about the technical problems or the navigation problems yeah. or the alien communication problems or the shall-we-kill-this-evil-enemy problem. Sure. I mean, there, there's no end of science fiction books that have no women in them. Um, mm. But you really notice it when you pick up a book that has no men in it. Uh, and I, I think I'm right in saying that Ammonite, which is on... Ammonite the has no men in it, that's and correct. So yeah. that's... Uh, Ammonite by Nicola Griffiths has no men in it. Three of mine have no men in it. Yep. Okay, uh, and the one I'm particularly impressed with is the Stars of Legion by Cameron Hurley. It's set on a, a fleet of spaceships rather than a planet, so the world is is entirely these these ships, and all of the technology is based on wounds. So the all of the, the female human-like people on this spaceship are um, their wounds that can be programmed to produce almost anything. Um, which is really creepy in, in some ways, but, but a fantastically different type of technology. And the end result of this is that there is nothing in the entire book that is male, no, nothing in the universe of the book at all, not, not animals or anything. Everything is female which I thought was, was a totally different thing to have done. Mm-hmm. It does sound, yeah, alien. It's yeah. totally yeah, possible yeah. to do if you've got the technology. Yeah. All you have to do is write the tech in. Yeah, makes sense. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but who's going to get round to it? Who's going to invent the technology with that in mind? Let's move outwards into the real world. Um, we've been talking largely about the Anglosphere, the Anglophone world, American, British, Irish, and so on, and Aliette de Godard, French, Vietnamese, but writing in English. I don't think she's writing... She's been translated into English. She's writing yeah, in... Yeah, she is writing in English. She's writing in English. Yes, she is. Yeah. Well, she, she was born in New York, mm. um, so she she speaks English like, like a native, yes, as native it were, speaker, yeah. because she is. Um, and her books are actually translated into French by somebody else, even, even though better, she lives yeah. in France. So French science fiction? What do you know about French science fiction by women? Um, there's a, a fair amount of it. Um, I mean... 
you know, obviously. Uh, there's a wonderful woman called Stephanie Nico, who is a, an editor uh, who does a lot of fantasy anthologies and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. And she's a, a good place to start with that. Um, and I'm now uh, trying to um, rack my brain, but of course I can't remember the names of the, the French women writers. No. So I can give you some Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Finnish. Finish. Right, so, Johanna Sinisalo, most famous for a book called Not Before Sundown, or, or Troll, as it was called in, in America, um, which is, is a book about uh, a young gay man who finds a baby troll living in his yard and who adopts this creature. And he discovers that it, it emits pheromones, which uh, uh, do what pheromones do, shall we say. So that, that's a fascinating book. But Johanna's written a whole lot of, of really interesting uh, feminist science fiction. Um, and the book I've just finished reading is Maracy Red Mantle by Maria Tuchanichop. She's a Swedish-speaking Finn. And it's the third and final uh, book in a series about uh, an all-women monastery. Uh, and it's for middle grade to young adult stuff so um it's 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 really easy read but it is fiercely feminist Mm. Uh, it has some really great stuff about female uh uh, religion as well Mm -hmm. so this is the whole um made mother crone thing you'll probably like it um yeah uh and and they do have a lot of problems with male violence um which the old lady sorts out by opening a door and inviting the men in and that's the end of them. <laughs> <laughs> when I used to teach English literature in Belgium, University of Ghent, I did try and teach science fiction and fantasy, and it was a complete waste of time, except for a few dedicated souls who read George R. R. Martin and Tolkien, because in, the, in Flemish culture, there simply is very little science fiction. It's not a thing. Horror, maybe, but it's all borrowed from the Anglophone world. There isn't native Flemish, native Dutch-speaking science fiction fantasy, which I found really odd. There is this no is the thing. Yes. But my students did not know of any. This was this is my 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 um me- measure. You see. Now, please tell me I'm wrong. But yes. So um, Thomas, somebody else, one of Hugo, um, a few years back. But, okay. Yeah. Um, I can't. It was our novel, I think, but mm. I can't can't remember the, the last name of hand. But I will mm. look it up for you. But certainly there there are Dutch people who write. Okay. All yeah. over Europe you can find it. There's an Just enormous come amount coming out of the African countries as well. Afrofuturism is really big. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the writers are male, but there are a lot of women doing SF and fantasy who mm-hmm. haven't necessarily been translated yet, but they yeah. are writing. It's a translation um, that's a problem yes, because is. the big yeah. markets are the Anglophone markets, yeah. really. Um, yeah. So much money on our side. So, yes. And the appetite for it as well. Yeah. So how can we open the doors wider? I mean, what 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 help is there for writers from from in cultures whose first language is not English, or from someone like Nigeria, where English is a very big part of the culture? Mm. How do you get these works translated? Uh, well, English? there are. I mean, there are bursaries for people to travel to an extent. I run mm. um, with other people a, a workshop called Milford, which does oh, a yeah. mm-hmm. um, a bursary for. Um, writers from other parts of the world essentially Mm. Um, but English does have to be their first or at least a language Um, translation it's it is really difficult you probably know more about it than I do Cheryl yes Um, because it's a money thing yes (laughs) it's a money thing yeah Uh, um, yes so I I have uh, in my catalogue at the moment one book in translation that one wasn't one that I I did initially it was done for the 2012 European Science Fiction Convention, which was in Zagreb, and the, the local science fiction convention 
uh, the local science fiction group in, in Zagreb put together this anthology of translated books. They did the translations themselves, um, so it's not the best English in the world. Uh, and I left it like that because that was how it was originally published for the convention. Um, but uh, the Eurocon is going back to Croatia this year. It's going to be in Rijeka. And I will uh, be publishing two books of Croatian writers in translation. And what we're doing for that is that they are translating it themselves, or in some cases writing it in, in English. But I'm then having it copy edited by somebody who is used to copy editing translated work. So that um, should get it uh, to a much higher degree of, of uh, uh, quality English without having to pay for a full translation, which mm, from my point of view, yeah, is, that's great, I couldn't yeah, afford yeah. to do a full translation. Mm. That's great. There is a bit of an attitude among Western publishers to go, oh, we've had one of those. Yeah. yeah. You know, we've had Certainly a is. whatever, uh, fill the box, and that's really depressing, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because the default is white and male still. Yeah. yeah. In many ways, the biggest problem for people in non-English speaking countries is is not getting their stuff here, but being crowded out of their own market Mm. by translations of English speaking writers. So if you go into a bookshop in France or Germany or Italy and you look for the science fiction section, it will be Tolkien, it will be George R. R. Martin, it it will be all of the familiar names, uh, J.K. Rowling, obviously all of these familiar names in translation in the local language rather than the local writers. Yeah, and that does quite a lot to dilute or at least to influence local local cultural initiatives mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Because if they all get glamorised by the huge mm-hmm. Western names who are on the, in television and film as well, yeah. then what is going to happen to the, 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 the native shoots of individual thinking about yeah. science fiction. <coughs> Emma, is this something you've come across? You seem to admit that it's really not my... No, no. Yeah. yeah. OK, right. I think we could have some questions now because there's certainly enough of you. Are there any... Yes, whoa, straight in there. <laughs> Please ask a question. I was one of the back of my head for a while. Um, I find it really depressing that in the sci-fi and fantasy that I've found, it tends to replicate the power structures of our world. And I'm wondering if you can recommend any books that don't have patriarchy and because I'd really just like a break from it a little bit. <laughs> well, the Cameron Hurley book. Um, the, the Cameron Hurley book that I mentioned, The Stars of Legion, which yeah. has Cameron no men, okay. nothing male yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, I, my Mars series is, is basically all female, but it does replicate some hierarchies because I'm not convinced that a matriarchy is going to be any better. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, also you might look at Le Guin's Always Coming Home. Yeah, um, and some of the mid nineteen seventies feminist stuff, like Susan McKee Charnas, yeah. The Wonder Ground, and um, and Sherry Tepper. Sherry Tepper, yeah. is a good one. Are you writing yeah. fast enough? There's also the Anne Leckie trilogy, um, which is stupendously genderless. All the characters are called her and she. There are no male pronouns used, so you're a set adrift at the very beginning not knowing. You think, I don't know if this person's a male or a female. Hang on, does this matter? And it's extraordinarily freeing. And you start to consider the characters on their other merits. And it also brings back to you quite quite fiercely how much we do rely on sexual identity and gender identity as a way of categorising or putting into a box the character when we meet the character. So I, I do strongly recommend them. Peter, have you got any? You've got Anne Leckie? Great, excellent. <clears throat> and they're very, very... Very well written. They're tremendous novels. 
Any other questions? Sure. My question is to Emma, because I, I know that Kate said at the beginning that you do the XR stuff as well, and I was wondering if, if science fiction and fantasy writing is, is a space to kind of explore the environmental crisis that we're facing right now and kind of not propose solutions necessarily, but at least explore how we, how we cope with that and what, what different outcomes could be. Do you, do you find that? Um, definitely. I think some of the best environmental fiction we've got at the moment is in science fiction and fantasy and um in 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 some ways i think that's obviously you know i I love science fiction and fantasy but i think in some ways a concern because i think there's a problem with realist fiction i mean uh amatov gosh um i can't pronounce his name um amatov Amatov gosh yeah Yeah. he he writes about this idea of um literary uh, fiction being tied to this idea of realism which is this realism that never even existed like this mm-hmm. idea of this sort of he talks about how he was walking one day and then this huge tornado came along and ripped through his world and like this idea of this stable reality is never actually existed really and is in some ways been like this idea imported from the western world it's kind of like manages to sort of somehow stabilize thing and ignore like all the chaos it causes overseas and that kind of thing um, so it's in some ways, it's like it's up to the science fiction and fantasy world that can kind of break the idea of what we think as reality mm. and show other worlds is 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 the only way that we can get to that at this point. When actually, I think realist fiction should be showing other worlds because what we think is realist is not necessarily even real. Thank you. There's an awful lot of apocalyptic science fiction out there, and there has yeah. been for decades mm. about the environmental crisis. Yeah. Mm. So it's it's uh, it's uh, we're Cassandras really. Yeah. You know we've uh, we've been talking about this for since probably about 1945, mm-hmm. and nobody has listened. Mm. Or they just so, think it's a story. Or they think it's a story. Yeah. yeah. Well, the main issue is that um, I'm, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the gentleman who the the fellow who wrote the book. The problem is is that people aren't seeing what's happening now in the everyday yeah. because people do, and when they think of apocalyptic. Yes, it is based in science fiction, yeah. but people do not generally want to think of the. I'm sorry, I think of the unthinkable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I'm an environmental consultant, so I read. Right, right. I read. Yeah, and um, loads of my friends do a lot of psych- psychological um, yeah, right. analysis and, te- okay. and testing. It is because it's like in. I'm sorry to say, in Game of Thrones, when <laughs> people do not want to believe the unthinkable will happen. Right. Yeah. They yeah. just don't. They just. They just don't. Mm, and sure. uh, trust me. The amount of clients I have, and you're trying right. to explain why you want the building to be designed in a certain way, it's because they think, no, it's not really going to happen, or that building's not going to be there. And I'm like, no, mm. you want this building to stand the test of time. Yeah. The right. test of time is coming. Mm. So, mm. And, and it will accelerate. And yeah. unfortunately, it, it, it is this striking a balance. But as I said, mm. because we don't see it in the everyday, because still all these events, whether it's flooding or fires in Australia mm. or anything like that, these will, people will go, okay, that was awful, but they will see it as a freak event. Yeah, right. And right. until we do start having actual mm. severe, not actually do have problems, but severe problems that right. will not stop. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, the, the issue he was making in the book when he wrote it was 
nobody's writing about that. No one's writing about mm. what's happening now. They're writing right. the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. We all know right, right. what's mm. happening. Mm. We're not talking about what's happening now and how it's affecting people and how it will continue to affect yeah. in the next 20 years, let alone in the next 100. Mm. That's the problem. Kim Stanley Robinson's new novel, New York. 2140. I'm afraid I couldn't even get through the first sec- the second chapter. It's pretty <laughs> dreary. Have you read it all the way through? Uh, I haven't, no. Okay. But it, it doesn't surprise me that, uh, as, as I said, in connection with the Mars stuff, stand mm. stuff, if if you, you don't like all that technical thing, then it can be really, yeah. really dreary. And that's about New York being flooded um, and the seawater levels rising. But, but what Stan is trying mm. to do is, is try to look for practical solutions. Mm. Mm. Uh, and also, in Aurora, to, to poo-poo the idea that we can somehow flee to another planet because you know, oh, we yeah. can't. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, um, the, the current... William Gibson series um, with Peripheral and now Agency, uh, what he's done in that is it is set in the future, but he has explained that there has been an environmental catastrophe. And the reason it happened was because it took place over several hundred years and nobody really noticed because the water was getting slowly warmer mm. and warmer and suddenly we were boiled and we hadn't noticed. Yeah, and the muscles um, boiling has happened yeah. last week. Yeah, There's a story by James Titree Jr., who is, of course, Alice Sheldon, published in 1969, called The Last Flight... Dr. Rain, in which a doctor gets on a flight, passes on the disease, gets off the flight, immediately gets onto another flight and basically flies around the world spreading the plague that he has generated because he thinks humanity's lived too long. And it's a pretty, I mean, all her stories are pretty depressing, but this one is particularly grim because it's about mass murder on a micro, micrological, that's not a word, um, microbiological level as well as intent. And it's very coronavirus. It really is, um, and it's only six years old. Yes, that was a bit of a shock remembering that this morning. Mm-hmm. Other questions? Yes. Um, so I, I have like maybe a category to um, add to the list of the way men science fiction the way women do. Mm-hmm. And that, the way I see it is that, obviously I'm making gross generalisations here, but I think for men a lot of time it's escapism it's um, stepping into another world playing a role being yes a being right. a hero yeah. for women right. mm. one of my favourite my favourite novel novel of all time is like Woman on the Edge of Time mm. oh yeah Marge Piercy yes because it feels so raw and so urgent and it doesn't feel like she's playing games she's literally manifesting like a future world mm. that I would quite happily step into right, right. this moment yeah. just be like well F all this, mm. I'm off. <laughs> you yeah. Know? But, yeah. And contrasting that really brutally with a really um, uh, capitalist, patriarchal, brutal society. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of my favourite authors who are women in sci fi are really, they're trying hard to like manifest something greater if it's a utopia, actually almost like trying to give it a blueprint yeah. of something better could be. Yeah. So, in this is how it could society, be. It's, it's, you know, it's post-gender. It's post-people having to, to give birth. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's communal, everything's shared. It's the ultimate kind of egalitarian utopia. Yeah. And some bits haven't aged as well as others, but in others you just think, yes. Like, this yeah. is... This What's is wrong with this? Why can't we move yeah, to that? Yeah, why I can't love... we make a yeah. that? So yeah. I wonder, I mean, can you... I mean, one, can you think of any other authors that do that kind of thing? Because I love it. But also, <laughs> is that something that... Rings true with you. I think well? it does ring true. Yeah, Sherry Tepper, you should probably have a look yeah, at if you haven't already. Sherry Tepper. S H A E R I. I mean, the the trouble with Tepper is is that she does really hate humans. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, she she's 
I mean, she, she's writing this stuff in you the say 70s. that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's writing it in the 70s and 80s, and she's already come to the conclusion that, that humans, and male humans in particular, are a plague on the planet, and mm. the world would be better off if we got rid of them. Um, or or if, if you could somehow infect their minds with some sort of mind-control virus <laughs> and, and tell them what to do. Um, but, she, I mean, she does have some, some really great books that have come out of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But, I mean, yeah, obviously, if you benefit from patriarchy, then you can afford to have adventures and, and whatever. If, if you're being oppressed by patriarchy, then you, you want to imagine worlds that can be a better place. It makes perfect but, sense. Yeah. yeah, Starhawk is another person you ought to look at, actually. She's a pagan writer as well as a, a novel, but she has done some science fiction novels. Mm-hmm. Marianne Seamus. Yes. Any other questions? One at the back. Yeah, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about um, there are a lot of women writing sci-fi and fantasy, which is great, but there does seem to be a problem. A lot of people make the assumption that they're writing YA fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if yeah. you had any thoughts about that. Yes, arg. infantilizing infantilizing writing in a in a female way i don't know it really annoys me that becky chambers is i'm told becky chambers is a ya not writer she may well be but my goodness she's a fantastic writer and why can't we all aspire to write like her it's it is ridiculous yeah it's such a shame that they make this leap but it's a thing that the publishers and the bookstores tend to do, is that if, if it's got a woman's name on the cover, they will shelve it in YA, regardless of what it, the, mm. the content is. Um, it's, it's one of many issues with the, uh, the industry. Let's see if I've got a, mm. a recommendation here. <laughs> yeah, so this book... It's called uh, Gender Identity and Sexuality in Current Fantasy and Science Fiction. Uh, It's from Luna Press, which is a very small press based in Scotland, uh, edited by Francesca T. Barbini. And in there, there is an essay by Juliet McKenna, which goes through in detail the whole of the publishing pipeline from how people uh, learn to be writers right through to, to bookstores and contact with the customer and all ways in which... Uh, women are disadvantaged by that process. Uh, it's really a, a quite a horrific essay in yeah. some ways, but it, it's amazing to see it actually put out in detail like that. There's a lot. There's also a very good book by Joanna Russ called "How to Suppress Women's Writing." Yep. Basically, by telling her she's wrong, she's stupid, she's too young, she's whatever. Um, it's quite an old book now, but I think it's been recently republished yeah, by an American good. academic book. But you should be able to find second-hand copies on Abe, for example. But yeah. that that is a very good read as well as a theoretical primer for in fact joanna russ generally is, oh, is yeah a good she's one amazing we should have mentioned we should have she invented the phrase galactic suburbia which has come back to me yeah. so we did mention her but not by name well done, right man. you had a question yeah um i'm just wondering how much of the bias in attitude between men and women is due to the emphasis that men have on the technological science side mm-hmm. compared to the women on the arts side. I don't know if the panels have any, panel members have any comments on that. This is down to the history of science fiction, which in certainly in Britain and in America too, evolved through the 1930s to the Second World War with men writing because they were scientists. And so science had a massive dominance. If it had been economists writing, we would have a completely different track record of science fiction. And I think it was only after the Second World War that 
other aspects of the human experience and human knowledge were came into being because so many men and women in the Second World War and after were re-educated. They could afford to go to college, to go to university, especially through the American military programs. So you got a lot more um, dif- different disciplines, you like, feeding into the science fiction world. Does that that make sense as a background? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that takes you back to the 50s, I think. Yeah, yeah. But after that, we still get a lot of books written about technological mm. explosions. Um, just it is, it is a thing, but also politics. Ian Banks was mm. he the one to really make political science fiction a thing with China Mieville as well, and Ken McLeod, and Ken McLeod, yeah. yeah. So that's eighties, um, really, isn't more it? general political science fiction. But women have been writing political science fiction forever because yes. feminism is politics. Yes, um, but there are there are women who are scientists who write mm. science fiction. I think, for example, of Vandana Singh, who's mm. an, an Indian woman with a PhD in. Uh, uh, cosmology and mm. nuclear physics sort of stuff mm. um, uh, and there's there's a Canadian woman who's got a uh, as a lecturer in biology who does amazing stuff and I can't remember and there's Vonda McIntyre who I publish yep. Vonda McIntyre was a geneticist mm-hmm. and her first novel was The Exile Waiting and then Dream Snake which was the big hit Dream Snake won all the Hugos um, when I was setting up my company about two years ago The Exile Waiting was at the back of my mind, but I didn't really click that actually I could email Vonda McIntyre because I knew where she was and could I please republish The Exile Waiting because it's a superb novel. And she emailed back. That was a geek moment. And we agreed. We set the contract. And the contract was signed February last year. And a week later, she emailed me to say that she had stage four pancreatic cancer. And we worked so hard to bring the book forward because it was scheduled for this year to be a 45th anniversary publication. Mm-hmm. So the designer of the, 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 the designer and I got the text together. Um, Una McCormack, who is a Star Trek novelist, mm-hmm. really, really great novelist, she had agreed to write the introduction. So she switched her schedule around and she delivered the introduction in time. We got the cover art done. And Vonda was able to see the cover um, before she died. She died three weeks after. But the book's available, and I cannot recommend it highly enough because this this is a, a woman who is such a great science fiction writer and a scientist, and she's interested in how people evolve and bodies evolve and what genetics does. It, she's just tremendous, so I commend that novel highly. You have a hand up. I think uh, just going off of republishing sort of books, sci-fi books written by women, I read an article ages ago now about how sort of Jane Austen books and Charlotte Bronte and all these sort of old classics are getting republished into so many different editions but women's press sci-fi books like what there is that's kind of all there is and there's only sort of certain ones that have started to be republished and there's this whole massive kind of breadth of amazing you know sometimes problematic sci-fi that has been published by women and sort of written by women um, and so the iron is like the sort of symbol of that publishing house, and yeah. it's no longer functioning anymore. No, it's, yes. that was a 1980s one. It was, Virago, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah. No, that's Women's Press was the iron. Think, oh, oh, so that's what you're right. Yeah, yeah, no, women, women's yeah. Press were, were great leaders in reprinting yeah, women's science I, fiction. I, I uh, collect Women's Press books because I really like them, and um, mm-hmm. I am just thinking sort of why do you think that. I mean, I read women's press books constantly. It's like, like, like my thing. And I just was wondering why you think certain books are getting republished when, like, we're kind of tired of it. Like, I've seen all the editions of Women's Rights I need to see in my life. Mm. But I'd love to see, like, a new edition of, like, the new Gulliver 
or yeah. something like really, really sort of weird and out there and like yeah. strange and odd and people, no, no one's touching them. And it seems like Well, speaking as a publisher, they have to sell. Yeah. You can't invest the money without knowing the book is going to recoup the production costs at the very least. Wuthering Heights gets taught. Wuthering Heights gets taught by millions of mm. colleges worldwide. And so you need new editions every generation at the very least, and then college students buy them. So the economics of it is absolutely essential. Um, there's also, is it really readable? Is it readable now? Because there's a real difference in commercial terms between a work of important major science fiction that came out in the early 70s, say, which is a product of its of its time and is important sociologically, culturally, but it is, is it actually readable now as a fantastic read? Because if it's not, it's not going to sell, so it's not going to get republished. I mean, that is the problem. It could be republished as ebook only, which is a great deal cheaper, but you still have to get the rights. They cost money. Royalties cost money. Um, the economics of publishing is something I could bang on about for days because it's something I have to think about a lot. But that, that is a principle. Getting, getting yeah. the rights is sometimes a problem. I and mean, I can put out a new ebook relatively cheaply, and there are books that I would love to publish. But I know that, that the people who own the rights would charge far more for them than I could ever recoup by publishing it. And therefore, I'm stuffed. Mm-hmm. I think just speaking on, I run a little charity bookshop and all of these that women's press book they always just get back in the 50p boxes it's, it's yeah like, it's a shame I think it's good for me to even buy them for example mm-hmm. but also it really mm-hmm. raised my heart when we're charging like yeah. Yeah, so I know. much money mm-hmm. for like well if if you've got suggestions about books that really need reprinting come to me and i will look at them i'm, I'm always interested but I have if to. I emailed you about it. I will email you a list. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I'm very we'll responsive. Yep. Yeah. And if, if she won't take them and I can get the rights, then I'll do them. <laughs> I'm first. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean you you have a higher profile. You can get your books in here. I can't. That's true. So... Yeah. Book Trade Network is also very important. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. We're five minutes over our time, so I think that's it. Could you join me, please, in thanking our panellists? Thank you very much. Can I just say, if anyone's interested in the translation debate, we've got a panel on women in translation at the festival next month. And we're featuring a woman from Leia Fraser, who's a Mexican writer. Trefonia Mofogano, who's a Victoria Yeah. And Olivia Halliwell, who translates from Slovenian. So, yeah, we'll be talking about why is it that we don't get to see so many translated writers in the mm. British market and what we can do about that. Good. Thank you. Um, come and ask questions. Go buy books and chat. Thank you so much to everybody on the panel for that interesting evening that Maddie and I spent at the Bristol Festival Ideas. The last person you heard was Sean from Bristol Women's Literature Festival. Thanks very much to Sean and everybody else for allowing us to record the panel and put it out for this episode of The Cosmic Shed. We'll be back very soon with two more episodes which are actually already recorded. One is on the never-ending story and we're going to hear from one of the scientists behind the discovery of the biggest explosion since the Big Bang and a wonderful conversation with Amy Bean, the daughter of Alan Bean, 
the fourth man to walk on the moon. That's coming soon to The Cosmic Shed. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.